Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 23. Hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. 
For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm leaves and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Having set forth the requirements for maintaining the holiness of the priests and of the sacrifices in chapters 21 and 22, Moses now turns to the feasts of the Lord in chapter 23. There's a way in which this, there's a, since Israel is supposed to have a central sanctuary where they gather, it's not actually realistic to expect them to gather every week. So even though we see the, there is the Sabbath requirement where it talks about it being a holy convocation, though What exactly they did, we never hear about anywhere else in Scripture until much later. But the the feasts of the Lord are the times when all Israel can gather at the central sanctuary. And as such, these feasts are to structure life before God. And like the rest of the ancient world, the agricultural cycle of planting and harvest sets the tone for the times of worship as well. The various feasts of Israel are timed to coordinate, as you heard, with various parts of the harvest. There's the barley harvest in the beginning of the year, and then the wheat harvest is at the end of the year with all the, the, the grapes and such. And so those, the, different, the different timings of which month you do what is all connected with the various crops of, of Israel. And in Leviticus 23, we have a chronological description of the Lord's appointed feasts, these sacred assemblies, these holy convocations. And uh, it's worth noting that two of the three major feasts have clear New Testament parallels. Uh, 
Passover connects with Easter clearly as the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Good Friday. Uh, and then the, the Passover meal was being celebrated right around that time. Likewise, uh, Pentecost and Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we heard this morning. Now, the, what do you, you know, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is the one that's less obvious as to what the New Testament does with it. But we'll get there at the end. In, in verse 3, God starts by reminding us of the Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, verse 38 will make clear that the Sabbath is not one of the feasts. It is rather a day of holy assembly. Uh, and God is transforming this idea of Sabbath in his covenant. Uh, the Babylonians had a Shabbat on the 15th day of the month, but it was not a day of rest. So God is do doing something very different than the Babylonians had. At creation, God rested on the seventh day and calls it Shabbat, the seventh day. This becomes the key, the, the key idea of, of the Sabbath. And in the fourth commandment, Israel's seventh day rest is a participation in the divine seventh day rest, which becomes a sign that Israel is called to enter God's rest. And the, the, the rhythm of work and rest that you see in, in the, the Old Testament scriptures is unique in the ancient world. Nowhere else do you find a rhythm of six days shall you labor and resting on the seventh. The, the month is, is organized around the cycles of the moon, the year on the sun, the day on sort of light and darkness. All these aspects of time have very natural connections. The week, there's nothing in nature that corresponds to the week. The reason for having a seven-day rhythm is God's own example. It's because we're created in the image of God, and so this is why he has created us in order to follow the same pattern. He created us to work for six days and rest on the seventh. The, the Sabbath in this respect is not a burden, but a blessing. It is a gift to those who are overworked and overstressed. And the, the nature of the Sabbath assembly is, is not immediately clear uh, from the way Leviticus puts this, the language of holy convocation suggests that some sort of meeting was held, but there's really not, no detail given as to what would this look like. But part of this is, it, it looks from what we see in the rest of the Old Testament as though Israel was not very good at doing what God told them to. So, not surprisingly, we shouldn't look at sort of, oh, how did they do it? Because how they did it was oftentimes not actually what God said. But verse 4 then starts the description of the appointed feasts. It starts with, with the Passover. The, the Passover is on the 14th day of the first month. Uh, and notice how the, the Passover is already being transformed from a domestic meal, as it was in Exodus 12, to now a sacred feast, and it's going to continue that transformation throughout the Pentateuch by Deuteronomy, it'll be clear that, that the Passover meal, as it's to be practiced by Israel, doesn't really look like what they did in Egypt when they came out of bondage. It's actually, when you think about it, it's a memorial 
of what that of that. It's not actually you know it's not a reproduction. Sometimes people nowadays have this idea, oh, we should do a Passover Seder, like, and they try to make it look like, oh, here's what it would look like if you were back in Egypt. It's like, that was never the point of the Passover meal. The, the Passover feast was designed to commemorate in the same way that, you know, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper the same way that Jesus did with his disciples. We don't have a whole meal. We have, we, and, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, do it this way. In order to, because this is, this is the, you might say, this is, we're not doing the Last Supper memorialized, we're doing the Lord's Supper as a communal covenant meal. And that's very much what's happening in the Passover here, where they're not just reproducing what they did in Egypt, they are commemorating what they did in Egypt. And note also, uh, Actually, eventually, the priests will even take over the job of slaughtering the lambs. You know, in Egypt, it was, it was each household. And by the time you get to uh, Nehemiah, it's going to be the priests doing all the slaughtering. Now, the Passover is also comes, it's connected with this Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days where Israel would eat bread made without yeast, which was also rooted back in that original Passover meal when they were told to make their bread quickly so they wouldn't have time to rise. And so the, un, the idea of unleavened bread was connected to the haste with which they left Egypt. And notice that the convocations are held on the first day and the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when you hold a holy convocation, you are not to do any ordinary work. In other words, feast days are days that should be set apart for worship and otherwise treated like a Sabbath where we rest from our ordinary labors. So the, the feast days all throughout this, the days of holy convocation are days where we set apart, we, we set apart the day for, for rejoicing and celebrating before God, and we set aside our ordinary labors in order to gather and rejoice before God. Now the second feast has to do with the harvest. Um, now verses 9 to 22 is one whole section which it, even though there's 50 days in between these two parts of this feast, but, and actually here in Leviticus, we don't hear all the connecting pieces. Later on, actually, both in Exodus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy, we'll hear how, the, how this connects, because when it says that when are you, this, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest is supposed to wave the sheaf before the Lord, well, Elsewhere, it makes clear that this is the day after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So basically, this is connect. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is also where you bring the first fruits, and then the Israel is supposed to bring the the first part of the harvest to the Lord, which they do at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Sabbath spoken of here is the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then you count seven weeks to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So that's 50 days. And on the day after the seventh Sabbath, they celebrate the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. So if you think about, if, it's, if you count seven Sabbaths and it's the day after the seventh Sabbath, that makes Pentecost is always on a Sunday. And Pentecost is the fulfillment of Passover because the, the Passover, or rather the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is a seven-day feast, but Passover ends with Israel still in bondage. Passover is the feast that points to the future deliverance of Israel, because when you're remembering Passover, when you're remembering the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're remembering that you were slaves in Egypt. 
But then the first fruits of the harvest are brought then, and then you bring, you count the, the, the seven sevens, you count the 50 days, you count to Pentecost, and you start to realize what God is telling Israel is that Passover is incomplete without Pentecost. Now, translate that into what we see in the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus is incomplete without the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you do the math carefully, um, you'll also, if you count 50 days from Passover, in back in Exodus, if, 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 you, if, you sort of, if you read through Exodus and you count the days and the weeks, where are you 50 days after the Passover in, e- in Egypt? You're at Mount Sinai, and they're giving the law. Moses is on Mount Sinai, and the law is being given on Pentecost Sunday. Pente- the, first, the first Pentecost Sunday, before there was even a feast of Pentecost, Moses was standing on Mount Sinai and was giving the law to Israel. So Jewish tradition has always related Pentecost to the giving of the law. After the, the destruction of the temple, where the, the connection to the harvest becomes less and less important, it really, Pentecost becomes the feast of the law. And, but think about what's going on at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Israel. What, what had appeared at the top of Mount Sinai? The glory of the Lord appeared on the mountain. The presence of God with his people. And what happened when one greater than Moses ascended the hill of the Lord and entered into the heavenly holy of holies? Well, He poured out his Holy Spirit and fire came upon the earth, resulting in the proclamation of the word of the Lord, as we heard in Acts 2 this morning. So there's a very real way in which what the New Testament does with Passover and Pentecost, with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, well, that's a whole lot like what the original Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had been in redemption from Egypt. But redemption from Egypt doesn't really get you very far without Pentecost, without the law, without God's presence, without the Holy Spirit coming to his people to dwell with them. Without, without Pentecost, Passover is not going to accomplish much. Without the coming of the Holy Spirit, it was all nice and good that Jesus died and rose again. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't come, the gospel's not going to the nations. There, the, the future of God's people is not going anywhere. Now, verse 22 may seem odd in this context. Uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. It's like, okay, why, we already heard this back in chapter 19. Why are we hearing this again? The Lord now repeats this in the context of worship. If you would be holy as your God is holy, then make sure that the poor and the sojourner have something, not just barely enough to eat, but something that they can come to the feast with you. Because we're talking about the feasts here. And so if the poor and the sojourner are going to make it to the feast they got to have something to eat at the feast. Not, so this is not just what they do you know, day to day, but it's, it's, make sure that the poor and the sojourner are included with you in the feasts of God's people. This sets us up for the feasts of the seventh month because the feast 
of the, of the seventh month is where you would bring the tithe. Uh, what would the poor and the sojourner bring to the feast of the seventh month? Well, if you have left sufficient resources in your fields, then they will not have to come empty-handed. And notice, as we saw in chapter 19, there are two principles at work here in the gleanings idea. First principle is, don't be selfish. Yes, it's your field. Yes, it's your harvest. But if Yahweh is your God, then you will care for the poor the way that he cares for you. Now, the second principle is that the poor are expected to come and get it. It's right there for them to take, but they do have to come and get it. I should also mention there's another category of those who are unable to work, uh, like Naomi in the book of Ruth. You don't find Naomi out gleaning. She's too old. Rather, they are cared for those around them who are able-bodied, like Ruth. It's part of why Ruth goes with Naomi. Ruth's sort of like, you're not going to make it by yourself. You're going to need somebody to take care of you. And that's, this is why Boaz is so impressed with Ruth. He's sort of like, you did all that for your mother-in-law? I mean, that's impressive. And he was right. Now, these last three feasts of this in the seventh month are, uh, are the ones that perhaps we, we know more about Passover and Pentecost because of how much they connect to New Testament themes. But what's going on here in the seventh month? The Feast of Trumpets is on the first day. Pay attention to the days here. The Feast of Trumpets is on the first day of the seventh month. And it is a a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. So this is the the shofar, the ram's horn. It's a feast for blowing trumpets, blast of trumpets. That sounds interesting. Trumpets were not musical instruments in those days. They are for signaling. So the blast of the trumpet will, and depending on what you hear, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you hear reveille, you know, oh, it's time to get up, it's time to get up. Uh, you know, you hear taps, and it's like, ah, it's time to go to bed. It, there's all these different ways you can blow a trumpet to signal different things. You hear certain blasts, and it says, oh, we're, it's time to go to war, everybody get together, there's enemies coming. There's another, another way, if you blow it a different way, ah, that's the call to gather for worship. So, just it's going to be a different sort of blast depending on what the occasion is. And so for the first day of the seventh month, the blowing of the trumpets signals the coming judgment of God. Now, why do I say that? Because of what comes next. Because the first day of the month, the blowing of the trumpets announces, everybody pay attention. You've got ten days. Because on the tenth day of the month, is the Day of Atonement. So everybody get ready. It's, this is the signal that's sent out to all Israel. Everybody get ready. This is, this is the, you know, big stuff's coming. The Day of Atonement was the tenth day of the seventh month. Now, the, the word atonement here is actually plural, so it, it suggests complete atonement. It's, it's a Day of Atonements. It basically, it's going to be everything. This is the only prescribed fast day in the law, where and they are told to uh, their Sabbath rest is to be from evening to evening. You start your fast on the evening of the ninth day, and you fast until the evening of the tenth day. It's worth noting that this is one of the passages that shows us that the evening of the ninth day is still considered the ninth day. You sometimes hear people say that in the Old Testament the day started at sundown. 
Well, if that was the case, then Moses would have said, then you start your fast on the evening of the tenth day. Because if the evening is, if, if the tenth day starts at, the, at evening of the ninth day, then you, he would have said it was the tenth day. He doesn't. He calls it the evening of the ninth day because it's, it's the ninth day until the sun comes up again. The twilight part after the sun goes down is still part of the ninth day. And why is Moses so explicit? Because people need to know, when do I start my fast? When, you know, sort of, it's the question everybody always asks when we have a fast day. When am I supposed to start and when can I stop? It's a perfectly legitimate question. Everybody always, all the way back to Moses' day, they were asking, when do I have to start? When the sun goes down on the ninth day. And by the way, that's part of why we will be having communion together on the evening of our fast day, Thursday, uh, because that means that we'll be having our service. It'll be right around this time. And so the sun will be just going down during our service. And then we will have communion together, breaking our fast. Um, so I would encourage you, you know, eat an early dinner on Wednesday the 22nd. Uh, and then we'll fast together on the 23rd and break our fast together with the Lord's Supper Thursday night. And just simply put, fasting, properly speaking, refers to abstaining from food entirely. Now, Obviously, there are some people who, for health reasons, cannot abstain from food entirely. And in such cases, a partial fast is appropriate. Uh, you'll notice the, the, the language that, that God uses here is to afflict yourself. I mean, the point, of, the point of fasting is to humble yourself before God. And abstaining entirely from food for a day is hard. You get hungry. If you're not careful, you can get hangry. Fasting does not make you feel particularly holy. It can make you feel irritable and annoyed. That's actually part of the point of fasting. It's easy to think of ourselves as competent and self-controlled when we are full and at ease. But when we are hungry, we are reminded of our dependence upon God. So if you cannot abstain entirely from food, make sure that you afflict yourself in some way that creates a similar sort of discomfort. I'll put it that simply. And if you need help trying to figure out what that might look like, feel free to ask. You know, talk to somebody who has experience in fasting. I'd be happy to talk with you. Others, you know, talk, talk with friends, say, hey, what do you do? Um, that could be a useful way of, of learning from others. But... Jesus also expects us to fast. Indeed, he says it the same way in which he expects us to pray. He, he didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. And you see the apostles practice this in the book of Acts. In Acts 14, verse 23, when they're getting ready to ordain elders, they set them apart with prayer and fasting. It's also important to note that the, the, the fast of the seventh month in Israel's calendar is also just five days away from the great feast of booths. Fasting for the Day of Atonement was to lead directly to the great celebration of God's provision for his people. The great harvest feast is five days away. So when you hear the trumpet blowing on the first day of the month, this is now setting up the next two weeks, three, really three weeks of your life. You're going, to, you're, you're, you're going to prepare over the next 10 days for the fast day of the Day of Atonement. And you'll notice 
in, in chapter 23, it's talking to ordinary Israelites here. So you know, we heard in chapter 16 what the high priest does and what, uh, what happens in the, in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement. This, the day of, that's the day when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies making atonement for the people. But all the other Israelites are gathering and, as a fast day on the 10th day. And so after the fast on the 10th day, you'll then pretty much just have time to pack up your tithe and, and, and head to Jerusalem in order to get to the temple in time for the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths is from the 15th to the, to the 23rd of the seventh month. Uh, Exodus 23 and 34 also refer to this feast. Uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy give more detail. And they, they all say that the, it is to begin with a festive assembly on the first day and concludes on the eighth day. It's said to be a seven-day feast with holy convocations on the first and eighth day. Now, Throughout the scriptures, it's often simply referred to as the feast, because this is the great feast. This is the biggest feast of the year in the, in the, in the calendar of, of Israel. Now, verses 37 to 38 make it clear that these various feasts uh, do not alter Israel's Sabbath obligations. You know, the weekly Sabbath continues week by week, and there would be times throughout the year when you would bring vow offerings, gifts, free will offerings... And so this is where all these things are supposed to be part of Israel's ordinary life. Now, here at in Leviticus, where Moses is, I mean, if you think about the, the logistics of where Moses and Israel are, they're at Mount Sinai. They haven't left yet. They're not, they're not really thinking much about what life in the land is going to look like. Here, this is simply Moses giving the basic calendar, and many of the details will get flashed, flushed out more in Numbers and Deuteronomy as they get closer to actually living in the land. But it's worth noting that, uh, well, Leviticus doesn't mention the tithe here, although it will come up later in Leviticus. It's worth noting that the Old Testament requires a variety of economic obligations. There's the tithe, 10% of your increase, which you would bring to the Feast of Booths. There's the first fruits that you would bring at, the, at unleavened bread. There are gleanings that you leave for the poor, and these various vow offerings, gifts, and free will offerings mentioned here. So sometimes when people say, ah, oh, sort of, in the Old Testament they gave 10%. Actually, in the Old Testament they gave more than 10% because the tithe is only part of the obligations. The, the part of the problem is, is that this doesn't translate neatly into the modern economy because the average Israelite laborer has very few economic obligations. The tithe is based on produce, and so if you're a day laborer, you don't produce anything. I mean, sure. The landowner does, and you, uh, you work for him, but he brings the tithe. What does the day laborer bring? Well, his labor is tithed on by the landowner, not by the laborer. So, try to imagine, uh, when I've, I've sometimes tried to imagine, how would you translate this into a modern post-industrial economy? This is part of the reason why I don't try to say, ah, oh, yes, tithing is simply the way it's, you're supposed to do it today. Because the New Testament actually takes all these Old Testament principles and uses them in helping us think about them, but doesn't woodenly say, and just do it exactly like this. Rather, the first fruits principle says we should give the first part to God, not just leftovers. The tithing principle says that 
Okay, fine. 10% is a fitting standard. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoil before there even was a law of Moses. Gleanings are a reminder that a portion of our harvest belongs to the poor. And free will and vow offerings and gifts remind us that we shouldn't just be thinking about what we need to give, but the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That wasn't actually original to Paul. That was actually rooted in the very way the, the law was designed. Well, verses 39 to 43 then urge Israel to live in booths during the Feast of Booths. They are to remember that all Israel dwelt in booths during the wilderness wanderings. And so they're supposed to make booths to dwell in. It's something I, I like pointing out that really it's, the, the other name for the Feast of Booths is the Feast of Tabernacles. Because God tabernacled among his people. Uh, it's, he, went, he went camping with his people. They slept in tents and cooked on camp stoves. He had a tent and a rather large camp stove, the altar of burnt offering. But that's the picture that God gives, that he dwells with his people. He's living with his people, and he travels with them through the wilderness, and he wants to dwell in their midst. So this is why the Feast of Booths is all about God dwelling with his people, which is why when John says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John is very explicitly connecting back to this feast. Now, I said at the beginning of the sermon that Passover and Pentecost have clear connections to Easter and Pentecost in the Christian year. What do we do with booths? Well, the prophet Zechariah speaks of the Feast of Booths in Zechariah 14. And he says in chapter 14, verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So the nations, the Gentiles, will... Keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So this sounds pretty serious. If we don't keep the Feast of Booths, then the plagues of Egypt will come upon us. So how do we celebrate the Feast of Booths? Well, remember what we saw about the connection between the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. The Day of Atonement is the tenth day of the seventh month. The Feast of Booths starts on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. What is the Day of Atonement again? The Day of Atonement is the day when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sin offering in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. Without the Day of Atonement, there is no Feast of Booths. Without the Day of Atonement, don't even try celebrating the Feast of Booths. Now, the book of of Hebrews makes it really clear that the Day of Atonement has happened in Jesus. Jesus is, when, when does the Day of Atonement happen? No, it, it doesn't happen the, on the seventh month. It happened when our Lord Jesus Christ entered the heavenly holy of holies. When he once for all entered the, 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 the heavenly holy of holies made without hands in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so if there is a once for all Day of Atonement in Christ, there is also a once for all Feast of Booths in Christ. Indeed, the book of Revelation portrays the bride as a truly glorious booth. 
at the wedding supper of the Lamb, this is where the bride comes down arrayed as the, the heavenly Jerusalem to be a dwelling place for God. She is the place where God will dwell with his people. And the wedding supper of the Lamb is that feast. If you think about it, there is no need for Passover at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Passover has already been accomplished. The great redemption has already been accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Easter Sunday. Pentecost? There's no need for Pentecost at the wedding supper of the Lamb. The law has accomplished its purpose. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit has brought the bride to this day. What is the Feast of Booths pointing to? God dwelling with his people. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Indeed, our Lord Jesus points us in this direction in John 7 when John tells us that it was the Feast of Booths when Jesus went to Jerusalem and on the last day of the feast, the great day, the eighth day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of Jesus' heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus is glorified, then the point of the Feast of Booths has been fulfilled in him. He is the river of living water. So just the picture in John 7 is that at the Feast of Booths, the priests would do a water ceremony. Because they're supposed to remember how God provided for them in the wilderness. What was one of the chief ways that God provided for them in the wilderness? He gave them water from the rock. And so the priests in the temple would have this ceremony where they would, they would have a, a, a rock that was holding back a pool, a stream of water, and they would strike the rock, like Moses did, and, not, uh, and that when the water would come out. Everybody knew, there, you know, this was a setup, nobody, nobody thought, ooh, it's a miracle. Everybody knew, this was, it, it was designed to be a picture of what would happen. And they would, and, and this, and, and they would have everybody, nobody would drink. So everybody would be really thirsty. When, this, when the water ritual was going was to come, you wouldn't be drinking all day. And then the priest would do this, and then the water would come out. And so Jesus waits till the last day, the great day of the feast. And he says, anybody thirsty? And they're like, oh yeah, we're all thirsty. We're waiting for the rock, water from the rock. And Jesus says, no, no, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of my heart, will flow rivers of living water. He is the river of living water. Paul will say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. Israel drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so, in one sense, the Feast of Booths awaits us in the wedding supper of the Lamb. But of course, in another way, the Feast of Booths awaits us every Lord's Day. Because every Lord's Day, Christ, your heavenly bridegroom, offers you himself. He, he doesn't make you wait till the wedding supper of the Lamb for that living water. 
He gives you that living water as He gives you Himself as we come to the Lord's table. So the Lord's table in that respect is, is the anticipation of that wedding supper of the Lamb, the fulfillment of what Booth's was all about. And so let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, help us because we so easily lose sight of what You have done. We thank You for Your great work of redemption. We thank You that You have brought about the great redemption, the great deliverance from the bondage to slavery and slavery to sin and death in the resurrection of your Son, Easter Sunday. We thank you for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit whom you gave to us on Pentecost that we might have life in, in the name of your Son. And we thank you that we continue to look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb and you continue to feed and nourish and strengthen us with the body and blood of your dear Son that we might more and more grow in the grace and the knowledge of Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Help us, Father, because we need your grace day by day. We need you because apart from you, we have no good thing. And so help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Help us to... Keep our ears open that we might hear your voice. Help us to love you with a whole heart and to love one another as you've called us. Help us in every situation you place us in, in all the difficulties and troubles of life to trust you in the midst of trials, to trust you in the midst of afflictions, to trust you when, when things look dark and, and dreary. May we keep our eyes fixed upon the light of the world sh- shining forth in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.